I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we closely examine the text of Scripture and discover new depths as we compare Scripture to Scripture. And we're only one week away from finishing the book of Genesis, and this week we're going to face a bit of a unique challenge in the text, because this week we're going to read a total of 13 blessings. There are the 12 sons of Israel, but the blessing for Simeon and Levi are rolled into one, so there's only 11 blessings in chapter 49. And then there's the blessings over the two sons of Joseph that are given in chapter 48, and they all receive a blessing from Jacob before his death, for a total of 13 blessings. Now, the temptation that comes upon us as we reach this section of scripture is to split our focus 13 different ways and then to try to speak of the history of these tribes as they are presented later in scripture and later in history. And there's value to looking at scripture in this way and looking at these chapters in this way. But there are a hundred other teachers out there that approach these chapters in this way. And I, I'm not looking to replicate anyone else's work but rather to use that work as a foundation to press further into what we can learn in this text. Because I assure you, there's way more going on in these two chapters than simply a bit of fortune-telling over the sons of Israel. Now, there is indeed an element of future prediction going on here in relationship to each of the sons of Israel. I am not trying to discount that at all. I'm simply saying I am not going to focus on that. For our purposes today, this view of these chapters, they can actually act as a distraction that takes away from some of the more powerful elements of the text that, frankly, I've never heard anyone else teach on. And it's not that there are no others out there looking at these chapters in this way or even teaching in this way, but rather that I have not run across them. And if I haven't run across them, chances are you have not run across them either. And this is also not to say that we are not going to look at the blessings, because we will be examining these blessings. But we're going to do something in a non-traditional way. And once again, this teaching, it will be a bit of an experiment, since, as I stated, there are not many taking this chapter in this way. But when we began Genesis, I attempted to develop a few tools that we can use to dig deeper into the text to discover what is being affirmed by the text. And over the past 45 weeks, I've attempted to use these tools regularly to understand the complexity as well as the beauty of this text that we recognize as scripture. So, as we reach the end of the book, it would be foolish of us to simply discard these tools and revert back to a surface and solely literal historical understanding of these chapters, as the temptation that I described only moments ago would have us to do. Now, we have in the past few weeks been examining the end of the book of Genesis, as if it were, in fact, the end. Last week, we examined the story of Joseph as a foreshadowing of our Messiah, 
Uh, the week before, I compared the good land and the situation in the land of Goshen to the Messianic kingdom that is yet to come into our world. In this end of Genesis, it gives us a symbolic and thematic description of what we have to look forward to. And I've made this claim, and I, I still hold to it. Genesis is a self-contained story, from beginning to end. It opens with a setup. It presents a conflict. The story then progresses deeper and deeper into a depth of sorrow that would seem to be inescapable. And then in the midst of this despair, a single man is chosen. He's challenged, he's tested and guided. And from this man and his family comes a savior, and the savior blesses the world, and then returns man to that garden-like state from the beginning, to the place of bounty and blessing. Is every problem that was introduced in Genesis solved? No, because Genesis is, in fact, only the beginning of what it has taken throughout history in order to reverse the curses that occurred at the very beginning. But for all intents and purposes, the story of Genesis is complete. The chosen family rules the earth once again. The, they are princes and priests among the nations as man was intended to be in the garden. And they live in a land of bounty and wealth, as Eden is described. The family of Israel, they live in peace in the land. But not everything that is to come has been explained or accomplished. There are still some threads hanging out there that will come up in later books. But Genesis itself is complete. And so it is that once again we turn to this excellent text and read it aloud as it was intended to be read. And as we read it, let's be on the lookout for language of Eden, language of temptation, language of the fall, but this time in reverse, language of a kingdom that's being founded and the stones of that foundation, and so much more that's going on in this text. So open with me, and let's start with Genesis 48. Genesis 48, 1 through 49, 27. And after these events it came to be that it was said to Yosef, See, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Yaakov was told, See, your son Yosef is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. And Yaakov said to Yosef, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, See, I am making you fruitful, and shall increase you, and make of you an assembly of peoples, and give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Mitzrayim, before I came to you in Mitzrayim, are mine, as Reuven and Shimon, they are mine. Your offspring whom you shall bring forth after them are yours, and let them be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. And I, when I came from Padan, Rachel died, beside me in the land of Canaan, on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrat, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, that is, Beit Lechem. And Israel saw Yosef's sons, and said, Who are these? And Yosef said to his father, They are my sons, whom Elohim has given me in this place. And he said, Please, bring them to me, and let me bless them. And the eyes of Israel were dim with age, and he was unable to see, and he drew them near, and he kissed them, and embraced them. And Israel said to Yosef, I had not thought to see your face, but see Elohim has also shown me your seed. So Yosef brought them from between his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Yosef took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out at his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, 
and his left hand on Manasseh's head, consciously directing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Yosef and said, The Elohim before whom my fathers Abraham and Yitzhak walked, the Elohim who has fed me all my life long to this day, the messenger who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the youths, and let my name be called upon them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Yitzhak, and let them increase to a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Yosef saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it was evil in his eyes, and he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from the head of Ephraim to the head of Manasseh. And Yosef said to his father, No, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also becomes a people, and he also is great. And yet his younger brother is greater than he, and his seed is to become the completeness of the nations. And he blessed them on that day, saying, In you, Yisrael shall bless, saying, Elohim, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Yisrael said to Yosef, See, I am dying, but Elohim shall be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. And Yaakov called his sons and said, Gather together, so that I declare to you what is to befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Yaakov, and listen to Yisrael, your father. Reuven, you are my firstborn, my power, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of exaltation and the excellency of power. Boiling like water, you do not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their weapons are implements of violence. Let my being not enter their council. Let my esteem not be united in their assembly. Because they killed a man in their displeasure, and they lamed an ox in pleasure. Cursed be their displeasure, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I divide them in Yaakov, and scatter them in Israel. You, Yehuda, your brothers praise you. Your hand is on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children bow down before you. Yehuda is a lion's cub. From the prey you have gone up, my son. He bowed down, he crouched like a lion, and like a lion, who does rouse him? The scepter shall not turn aside from Yehuda, nor an inscriber from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him is the obedience of the peoples. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun dwells at the seashore. He is for a haven for ships, and his border is unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens, and he saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, and he inclined his shoulder to bear a burden, and became a subject to slave labor. Dan rightly rules his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan is a serpent by the way, an adder by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider falls backward. I have waited for your deliverance, O Hashem. Gad, a raiding band raids him, but he raids its heels. Bread from Asher is rich, and he gives delicacies of a king. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He gives words of elegance. Yosef is an offshoot of a fruit-bearing tree, an offshoot of a fruit-bearing tree by a fountain whose branches run over a wall, and the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Yaakov. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the El of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens from above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the limit of the everlasting hills. 
They are on the head of Yosef, and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. Benjamin is a wolf that tears. In the morning he eats prey, and at night he divides the spoil. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the final day of creation, God created beast and man. And man was blessed and given rulership over the beasts and the fish and the birds. And the youngest creature, man, was placed as the guardian of all that had come before. On the earth, God had created a green and fertile land, and into that land he placed man, and a choice was presented to man. Take and eat using human understanding and intuition. Define our actions according to our own desires. Follow your instincts. Or follow the leading of God and choose contrary to our senses, contrary to our own desires, contrary to cunning philosophy, to choose based solely on the word of God alone. And as chapter 48 opens some 2,000 years later, Jacob is lying on his deathbed, and Joseph brings his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to him. Now, as Joseph arrives, Jacob begins with his own story, and he quickly recounts the events of Genesis 28. And then he adopts the sons of Joseph as his own. Now, there's a lot to be said here about adoption, but for the moment, let's skip ahead, and we'll come back to this in a little bit. So let's move quickly forward to verse 14 through the end of the chapter. In verse 14, Jacob begins his blessing over the sons of Joseph, and after the initial part of the blessing, Joseph admonishes his father, going so far as to lay his own hands on Jacob. And verse 17 specifically states that the way in which Jacob was blessing his sons was evil in the eyes of Joseph. Now, question. What scale of good and evil is Joseph using to determine what is evil in this passage? He's using human societal norms, the way of the world. Now, this is something we're going to discuss a lot more next week. But this passage gives us one piece of evidence that Egypt had influenced Joseph as much as Joseph had influenced Egypt. But what is it that Jacob is doing here? Jacob is ignoring his eyes. His eyes have grown dim, and he is blessing according to the leading of the Spirit, rather than blessing according to human custom. He is reversing, in a sense, the near mistake of his own father. In Genesis 27, Isaac had insisted that Esau be blessed above Jacob, despite what God had told his wife. Isaac paid attention to his senses, all but the sense of hearing. In this chapter, each of those failures of the past, they're undone, and the model of the younger having honor and leadership above the older is upheld. And shockingly enough, it's being upheld to the disappointment of a younger brother, Joseph, that is ruling over his older brothers. Don't miss that dichotomy there. There's a bit of irony going on here that Joseph would stop this cross-handed blessing from occurring, or at least attempt to. Now, there are several instances in Scripture of people ignoring the sight of their eyes and choosing what they know to be true over what they perceive to be true. The story here is one of those instances, alongside the Akedah and the temptation of Yeshua. Because we have Jacob, in his old age, he's learned many lessons in his life. And one of those lessons is that God does not work in the way that humans think that he should. And he's finally recognized and internalized this truth to the point where he is able to withstand the displeasure of his favorite son 
in order to do what is right and correct in God's eyes. Now, in this instance, a bit of reversal of the sin of Eden is revealed for us to examine so that we might learn to model this in our own lives. And this is perhaps the primary thing that we as image bearers of the Most High can learn from this. We can learn or seek to learn to understand, to follow the Spirit of God, and to model His Word into the world. If we can learn this one thing, I believe that we'll be much closer to realizing the kingdom of God in the world. So let's go back just a moment to the topic that I skipped over a minute ago. What was Jacob's first act upon his deathbed? He adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons, as Reuben and Simeon, it says. Now this is no small matter, as this is how each of us lives our relationship with Messiah, even if you're Jewish. Now verse 19 states that about Ephraim and Manasseh, and that Manasseh will become a people, an Am, and that he will be great. But his younger brother is greater, and his seed is to become the Malo Hagoyim, or the filling up of the nations. Manasseh will be an Am, a people. Ephraim is going to be greater than that. He's going to become multiple nations. And here it uses the word goy, goyim. And that word literally means nations. For many teachers, you'll hear them say that it means nations outside of Israel. But there are several instances in scripture where the word goy is used to refer to Israel. So it simply means a nation. So what is it that Jacob is demonstrating here, especially as we examine this story in light of our own relationship to Messiah? It represents the adoption that's been extended to the nations, not only through Yeshua, but an adoption that's been present and available since the very beginning. The fullness of the nations is welcome in the family of Israel, and through the messianic figure of Joseph, the nations are brought into the family of God. And we'll see this again in the book of Exodus in chapter 12. But this is a topic that's touched on in more than one place in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And it finds its origins here. In fact, Romans chapter 11, the chapter that inspired the name of the congregation that I lead, Grafted Together, it has this to say about this that's going on here. Romans eleven twenty four through 25 For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own the olive tree? For I do not wish you to be ignorant of the secret brothers, lest you should be wise in your own estimation. That hardening in part has come over Israel, and the completeness of the nations has come in. We, being the Church of Rome in this example, the people from the nations, we have been cut from an olive tree that is wild by nature. And contrary to our nature, contrary to our flesh, contrary to our societal expectations, we have been grafted into a good olive tree, one that is cultivated and cared for. And then Paul tells us of a secret that we should not be ignorant of. Hardening in part has come over Israel. Well, does he say Judah alone? No, he says Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the nations. Now Paul knew the Torah better than anyone alive today, I would, I would bet. And in his recounting of this secret of the nations, he includes this phrase from this blessing. 
those from the nations can be adopted into the family of Israel just as easily as anyone else. And this is a truth that is as old as scripture itself, because Abraham wasn't a Jew. Abraham was a Gentile from the nations, chosen to be part of the family of God, adopted as a son and taught as a son and raised up to lead his sons in the way of the father. Abraham's heir until Ishmael was a man from Damascus, a Gentile who was circumcised alongside everyone else in Abraham's family. And Abraham had at least 318 men in his household, and not a single one of them was a Jew or even a Hebrew. They were what we would call Gentiles. Caleb, the spy from Judah, in Numbers 13, it records that he is a Kenizzite. Who are the Kenizzites? They are a tribe from Canaan. So Caleb, this leader of the tribe of Judah, was a Gentile. David's trusted servant Uriah was a Hittite. He was a foreigner who had joined himself to the family of Israel. Now there are accounts of multiple dozens of Gentiles who served the God of Israel in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 56 tells us what's going on here. It tells God's heart in this matter. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. Thus says Hashem, guard justice and do righteousness, for near is my salvation to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who becomes strong in it, guarding the Sabbath lest he profane it and guarding his hand from doing any evil. And let not the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to Hashem speak, saying, Hashem has certainly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Look, I am a dry tree. For thus said Hashem, to the eunuchs who guard my Sabbaths and have chosen what pleases me and are holding on to my covenant, to them I shall give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I give them as an everlasting name that is not cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Hashem to serve him and to love the name of Hashem, to be his servant, all who guard the Sabbath and not profane it and are holding on to my covenant. Then I shall bring into my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their sending offerings and their sacrifices are acceptable on my altar, for my house is called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And the master Hashem, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I gather still others to him besides those who are gathered to him. Now this is a truth that's existed from the beginning, but the Jews of the first century, they rejected this truth and they isolated themselves from the nations. In their attempt to be holy and separate, they went so far as to despise anyone who wasn't Jewish. They forbade table fellowship with those who were not, quote-unquote, part of the tribe. And Yeshua revealed this in his ministry as he ate with sinners and tax collectors, and he talked to Samaritans. As it says in John 1, 11-13, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God, to those believing in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the desire of flesh, nor of the desire of man, but of God. Now the desire of the man Joseph was to have Manasseh to receive the honor above his brother, but the desire of the father, Jacob, was to elevate the nations above the natural firstborn, and to include the nations in the midst of the natural born. The desire of the Father from the beginning is right here. And this theme of adoption, it's one that's carried even further into the Renewed Covenant. 
In Romans 8, 14 through 17, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of Elohim. And if children also heirs, truly heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we also be exalted together. Those who are led by the Spirit, you don't come to this belief through your own power. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are, in fact, sons of God through adoption. And if we are adopted as children, then we are also heirs of God, co-heirs with the Messiah. Don't lose sight of this, and it will become extremely important in a moment. In our suffering that we should face without fear, for we did not receive a spirit of bondage to fear, in that suffering, we are elevated and exalted alongside our Messiah in his own suffering. Galatians 4, 3-7 says this, So we also, when we were children, were under the elementary matters of the world, being enslaved. But when the completion of time came, Elohim sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under Torah, to redeem those who were under Torah, in order to receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, also an heir of God through Messiah. We, as children, before our adoption, we were controlled by the elementary matters of the world, controlled by our flesh, enslaved by our lusts, our desires, and instincts. Now those things which cause us to seek to know good and evil at all, let alone according to our own will. But God sent forth his son, born to a woman, under the Torah. Now this phrase, under Torah, is one that's very easy to misinterpret. It's not speaking of someone who is part of a nation which has laws. It's speaking of someone who has transgressed the law and is now under the penalty of the law of a nation. A person who is innocent of breaking a law is not under the law. But the one who has broken the law, well, that person is under the law as the full weight of justice rests on their shoulders. The Messiah in his coming was sent to those who are under the law, each and every person who has and will live. And he extended to us who were under the penalty of the law, redemption that brought us into the family of God, not as servants, but as sons and heirs to his kingdom. And this we're no longer slaves to our flesh, to our desires and to our instincts, we become sons with a father who cares for us. We're no longer under the punishment of justice, but now under the discipline of a father who is raising sons in his image. Ephesians 1 speaks on this theme in this way. Ephesians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Master Yeshua Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Messiah, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be set apart and blameless before him. In love, having previously ordained us to adoption as sons, through Yeshua Messiah to himself, according to the good pleasure of his desire. He has blessed us as Ephraim and Manasseh. The blessing with which Israel will bless. He has ordained us to be adopted as sons through Yeshua. Just as Ephraim and Manasseh were ordained to be adopted through Joseph, and to receive his blessing in his place and alongside him. According to his desire, 
the Father desires, and he will choose who to elevate and who to honor among his sons. Ephesians continues on in chapter 2 in this way, verses 11 through 13. Therefore remember that you, once nations in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no expectation and without God in the world. But now Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. You were once far off, once part of the nations, and you have been included in the citizenship of Israel. You are now part of the covenants of promise with the hope that was given of old. Ephraim and Manasseh, they were once sons of Egypt, sons of the nations. But through Joseph, they were brought into the family of Israel, and they received their blessing alongside Joseph. The blessing that we will get to momentarily. Now, this topic is one that has been corrupted throughout the ages, and we need a good grasp on what's being spoken of when it comes to adoption of the nations into the nation of Israel. When this happens, we cease being Gentiles at that point. We cease being Goyim. We cease finding our identity in the nations of the world. Rather, we begin to find our identity in Israel. And we see clearly in this chapter that this is what is meant when it comes to the topic of adoption. Genesis 48.16 The messenger who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the youths, and let my name be called upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Yitzhak, and let them increase to a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, it's common among modern believers to continue to identify as Gentile, to continue to act Gentile, to assume that there's one rule for Jews and one rule for Gentiles. But that's simply not so. It's even common among Jews to continue to, to identify as Jewish after the conversion, to become a Messianic Jew. And neither view is accurate. All who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. All who are of the faith are part of the olive tree, whether you're a natural or a wild branch, you're part of the same tree, and you're all united in the name of Israel. In the upcoming chapter, in chapter 49, Judah receives one part of the blessing, and Joseph another, both sons and residents of Israel, although one's more Egyptian at this point. Galatians 3, 28-29 says, There is not Jew or Greek, there is not slave nor free, there is not male and female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua, and you are all of Messiah. Then you are seed of Abraham and heirs according to promise. Now it's not saying that we stop identifying as male and female, but it's saying that there is all one law, all heirs according to the promise, all receiving blessing, and in that blessing also comes judgment. And so as we enter into Genesis 49, the blessing of the sons of Israel, all of the sons receive a blessing, but this blessing comes in the form of a judgment. It's not so much based on what they will do, but based on what they have already done. Each is given according to his works. And so a nation is founded with the twelve sons of Israel as the foundation stones upon which the nation of Israel is to be built. If Ezekiel 47.13, thus says the Master Hashem, This is the border by which you inherit the land according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Two portions for Joseph. Ezekiel describes the land that is to be apportioned to Israel, and Joseph receiving a double portion among the tribes. Uh, later on, we see the idea of the foreigner being added to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 
And it shall be that you divide it by lot as inheritance for yourself and for the stranger who sojourns in your midst and who bears children among you. And they shall be as native born among the children of Israel. And with you they have inheritance in the midst of the tribes of Israel. Then in chapter 48, the city is described and it has 12 gates. And these are the exits of the city, the gates of the city, according to the names of the tribes of Israel. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Yehuda, one gate for Levi. And on the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Yosef, one gate for Benjamin, one gate for Dan. And on the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Shimon, one gate for Yisachar, and one gate for Zebulun. And on the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates, one gate for God, one gate for Asher, and one gate for Naphtali. And the city is protected by 12 gates, and those 12 gates are the tribes of Israel. But then in Revelation 21, 10-14, it says, And having a great and high wall, having 12 gates, and the gates 12 messengers and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city have twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the land. The gates, they're the way into the blessed land, the way into the city that is the kingdom of God. And it's through one of these twelve gates. It's to be counted as Israel, not as a Jew, not as a Gentile. Not according to your status that the world has given you. Your old self, your old identity, it dies and you're born anew as a son of Israel when you're washed clean in the blood of Yeshua. These twelve sons, though, they receive their blessing from their father. And as I stated before, all of these blessings are judgments upon the ones being blessed. So as I started with, it's common to begin to examine this chapter beginning at the beginning and working to the end, to stop by each one and to attempt to discern how these blessings have been accomplished in the history of these tribes. I didn't do that. As I approached this chapter this week, I began in the center. I know this is not the usual way of doing things here in the West, but as you begin to see all of Scripture as chiastic, the center becomes the most important part for every piece. Now this chapter, though, has it's eluded me for the past three years as I've worked on my pattern-based Bible. I've spent hours with it and not been able to discern a chiastic structure in this text. It was only as I began to study for this lesson that it finally landed. Only now was I able to pierce the structure that's here. Now, I usually don't get too much into the chiasms in my teachings. There's another vehicle for that through the Patterns Bible. And I'm going to use the Patterns Bible to explore these fascinating textual patterns. And at some point, I hope to be able to teach the chiasms that are in the chiasm Bible. But for these teachings, I didn't want to get caught up in the chiasms. But this one, this one I want to share with you. First, because it's new, and I'm excited that I was finally able to pierce the, the chiastic nature of this chapter. Second, because looking at it this way, it can reveal some really awesome things in my own estimation. And I was able to discover this chiasm finally by beginning in the center. So where is the center, you may ask? I had some difficulty discovering the center, as there are only 11 blessings given, as Simeon and Levi are lumped together into one. So this naturally creates a lopsided list, as there are an uneven number of blessings. 
So as I counted and nothing stuck out, and then I shifted my focus a little, and I let the text lead me to its own center. And I found the center here, Genesis 49:18. I have waited for your salvation, O Hashem. Yeshua Techa, your salvation, or your Yeshua, Kiviti, I have hoped for, or I wait for with expectation, then Yodhe Vavhe, the name of God. It's only three words in the Hebrew in that in that verse. And it's this right here that is the center. It's the hinge of the blessing of the twelve tribes. One might even say that this is the chief cornerstone that this foundation of the twelve tribes is being laid on. And this Yeshua which brings the hope of Hashem to the family of Israel. But what you say, that leaves seven sons on one side and five sons on the other. That's not chiastic. It's not symmetrical at all. In fact, it's even more lopsided than it was before. And that's the beauty. Because I assure you, this is chiastic. But the key to understanding how this lopsided mess can be made symmetrical is found in the previous chapter. So let's go through these blessings, beginning in the center and working our way outward. So if we begin in verse 18 as the center and work our way outward, we'll find that there is a correlation of sorts that occurs in these blessings as they're given. So the two on either side of the center, they are Dan and Gad. And if we compare these two together, we'll find several similarities. Dan is described as one who raids others, and Gad is one who is raided by others. Both strike at the heel of their adversaries. They exploit weakness. Next, you've got Issachar and Asher. Issachar is strong and lifts a heavy burden and becomes enslaved. Asher is rich and serves a king. Now, they both end up in service to other, one in slavery while lifting heavy burdens, and the other as a servant to kings. You see how this works? We find in these ideas that are relatively that are connected to each other in a, in a way that helps us to understand a congruence that's going on here. So next is Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun dwells at the sea and is a haven. Naphtali is a deer with beautiful speech. Now this one it was a bit difficult to decipher as there does not seem to be anything that connects these two. And these two, they almost made me give up the whole thing. Once again, as I've done it before, as I've looked through these in the like they get to something like this and it just doesn't make sense and I, I discard it. But if you really consider each one of them, there is an element that correlates between them. The sea is a symbol as a place of chaos, and Zebulun will offer shelter in the place of chaos. A deer is a wild animal. It's a chaos of the land. And his speech will be a place of beauty. Now there's something there that I've not been able to discover, some way that these two are connected in their blessings. I'm not sure how the haven and the beautiful speech are to be related, but that's something that I simply have not had time to, to meditate on just yet. But they, they both describe one a chaos of the sea and one a chaos on land, a wildness in some way. The next part is where the extra space is added. Remember, there were seven that occurred before and five that occurred after. And this next blessing is where that ground is made up. And it begins with Judah and Joseph. These two blessings are the longest of all of the blessings. Judah is given authority and leadership over the family. He's also blessed with bounty, as it is described that he will use grapevines to tie up his donkeys, and the hems of his robes are saturated in grapes. And no one does this. 
Grapevines are not suitable to hold donkeys, especially a young donkeys who have not been trained to sit still when they've been tied. They would easily ruin a grapevine. Why would you do this? Why would you tie the colt of a donkey to a vine? Only if you had so many vines that they were as common as trees. The grapes also signify the abundance of joy and delicacies. Now, Joseph, Joseph is also called a fruit-bearing tree that does not pay attention to borders. His fruit extends beyond the land that he was planted in and is given to others outside of his own land. He's not well liked by some. He is attacked, but God will make him strong. And then Joseph is given the richness of the inheritance, the double portion of the birthright, the blessing of heaven, the blessings of the deep, the blessing of the breast, the blessing of the womb, a blessing that surpasses even the patriarchs. These blessings, they're heaped upon the head of the one who was separated from his brothers. So moving on, the next two sons are blessed in tandem, Simeon and Levi. And their blessing is that they will be scattered among Israel due to their violent natures. And we actually do see this occurring. Simeon gets landlocked by Judah and somewhat absorbed by Judah. And Levi doesn't actually get an inheritance of the land. They become scattered throughout Israel as the priests, as the priestly class. But there's no match for them. They are alone in this other side of this chiastic structure. And they, there's not a correlating pair of sons in the blessing. Or is there? You see, Joseph received his blessing. But who does his blessing include that is not named? Two boys who tend to be lumped together. Their match is found in none other than Ephraim and Manasseh the two sons who take the place of Joseph in the family of Israel. Simeon and Levi are judged, and it's pronounced that they will be scattered in Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh are in correlation, then gathered into the family and given a place. Now remember that we, as sons, are co-heirs with Messiah, and Ephraim is a multitude of nations. It's a multitude of nations that received the blessing of Joseph and became heirs of Jacob through Joseph. Just as we, who are from the nation, we've received the blessing of God and become heirs alongside our own Messiah. The final blessings then go to Reuben and Benjamin. Reuben is called the beginning of Jacob's strength, his honor, excellency, and so forth. But because of his, his taking of the spoil of his father's couch, Reuben will not excel as he should have. Now Benjamin is called a wolf that tears in the morning and divides the spoil at night. Both of these sons, at one time, they stood in place to inherit everything, to be chosen and honored above their brothers. But both are passed over in this blessing. Reuben gets supplanted by Judah. Benjamin gets supplanted by Joseph. And both are described as having a nature that preys on others. And these are the twelve sons of Israel, fourteen if you count Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, very few of them receive a great blessing that would seem as if it were good to our eyes. Only those who have been counted as worthy and have demonstrated that they are trustworthy. And these are the gates of the great city, the tribes through which God will bring about his plan. Now, they don't present a pretty picture of men who are sons of Israel, do they? Well, guess what? Neither are we. We are just as messed up as the sons of Israel. 
And yet God worked to bring them all together in unity and to give them the best of the world, to create through them a kingdom worthy of his name, a place where he could dwell, a place where they could live in unity without infighting, without pride, without attempting to elevate themselves over others. They were messed up, but so are we. We are messed up, and yet through our Savior, we are all brought together to inherit just as they were. Our inheritance is the land of promise. Our hope is the kingdom of life. Genesis is coming to an end, and in doing so as a self-contained story, it is presenting for us a picture of what we will find in the remainder of Scripture. We don't have to be perfect to be used by God, or to be His sons, or to serve Him. He makes us perfect through His Son the Savior whom we sold into slavery in our past. He makes us worthy and he adds us to him as heirs to his kingdom. He is the one who has granted us the rights to the kingdom of life. And he has called each one of us to seek his kingdom first, to Chai, to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.